0: He got a Pulitzer while I was his student, mm. and I was like, well, I should do this, because they're yes. just handing out Pulitzers.
1: <laughs> so I <was> like, let, <laughs> let me do this, you know? Hey, y'all, I'm Donnie Walton. And I'm DeSha Filion. Welcome to the URSA podcast, a celebration of all things short fiction. On this podcast, we interview authors, discuss collections and stories we love, and shine a light on new writers and those who never got their due.
2: And at URSA, we're not just talk, we're publishers too. Over at ursastory.com, we've created a new home for short fiction for some of today's most thrilling writers, as well as emerging voices, with stories you can read on your phone and audio stories that you can listen to right here in your favorite podcast app. We're doing all of this with support from you.
1: Become an URSA member today by subscribing in Apple Podcasts or by going to ursastory.com slash join.
2: Today, we're excited to have Clavis Natera as our guest. Clavis is the author of Neruda on the Park, a novel that you, Donnie, have praised as a beautifully observed and propulsive debut.
1: Yes. So this stellar work follows members of a Dominican family, the Guerreros, who live in Nothar Park, a predominantly Dominican part of New York City, and they've been there for 20 years. And they take radically different paths when faced with encroaching gentrification. And I'm not alone in praising this powerful page-turner. Naima Costa notes that it, quote, is as poignant and perceptive as it is sexy and thrilling the rare book that manages to be chilling fun and profound all at once our friend robert jones jr calls it beautiful and terrifying and the list of early fans goes on and on now if you've read neruda on the park and loved it as we did we have great news for you Clavis is a prolific writer of short fiction as well. One of the best short stories I've read in recent years was written by Clavis and published by Quelly Journal in 2019 called Played or How I Failed at Becoming a Chapiadora. And now we are super proud that Clavis' latest short story called Fog is an Ursa original. We're going to talk about this story on today's episode, so this is your official spoiler alert.
2: And a little bit more about Clavis. She was born in the Dominican Republic and raised in New York City. She holds a Bachelor of Arts from Skidmore College and a Master of Fine Arts from New York University. She's received honors from Pan America, Bread Loaf Writers Conference, Virginia Center for the Creative Arts and Voices of Our Nation Arts Foundation, VONA. Her fiction, essays, and criticism have appeared in Alienation, 36 True Tales of Immigration, Time, Gagosian Quarterly, The Washington Post, the Kenyan Review, Asterisk, and Quayle Journal, among other publications. Clavis teaches creative writing to undergraduate students at Fordham University and graduate students at the Writers Foundry MFA program at St. Joseph's College in Brooklyn. She lives with her husband and two young children in Montclair, New Jersey. Clavis, welcome to the Ursa Podcast.
0: Oh, this is such a thrill. I am so excited to be talking to both of you, Donnie and Disha. I am a huge fan of your books. Uh, oh, thank So this you. is such a dream come true. I'm trying here not to let my face crack. I'm oh. smiling so hard as the two of you are talking. I'm like, be cool, Clevis. Be cool. I cannot
1: be cool with the two of you, okay? Oh, like having Clavis. me. <laughs> We are so thrilled for you to be here and it has been like such a joy to see Naruto on the park finally out in the world. I know it has been a journey and I want to share with our listeners your personal journey as a storyteller. When did you first start writing stories and when did you know that this was the path for you?
0: So I started telling stories probably when I was very young. Um, <laughs> you know, I just loved making up stories as a kid in DR. You know, the, the power would go out and there would be nothing to do. And so we would just make up stories. And I always wanted to make people laugh. That was like the, the, <laughs> the end for me as a story. You're very comment. good at
1: that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> thank you.
0: Thank you. Um, but, you know, it wasn't until I started college that, you know, I had become an avid reader um, in junior high school right as I was learning English. So when I started reading books, I was probably reading mostly in Spanish. And then at one point I, you know, switched over when I got into AP English in high school. And so it wasn't until I got to college and I took a creative writing course with Stephen Milhauser, who is a fabulist, And he got a Pulitzer while I was his student. Mm. And I was like, well, I should do this cuz they're yes. just handing out pullovers. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, let, let me do this, you know? And so I started writing short short fiction then. Um yeah, when I was a freshman in
2: college. Wow. And Donnie and I have talked about the different challenges that come uh, with any writing fiction of uh, in any form, you know, writing a novel versus writing a short story. And so Donnie and I are kind of switching. She's written a novel and now she's working on short stories and then yeah. I'm writing, I've written a short story collection and now I'm working on a novel. What's been your experience, sort of the highs and lows of working with each of these forms?
0: I've been thinking about that a lot because to be honest with you, when I was in college, I was working on what i would call now an interlinked collection mm. of stories mm-hmm. and when i decided to apply to graduate school i was told across the board that you just wouldn't be successful as a writer with um shorter forms and so i had this idea about you know this little town in the dominican republic where all the men leave and the women are left behind. So I, I was like, oh, I think that a novel. And so I started working on that. And that's how I got into the NYU MFA program. But, you know, I just, when I think back on it, I think if, if the world would have been more welcoming of short stories, I probably would have spent a lot more time writing shorter stories. More often than not, I find that my entry point into any story is character.
1: Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm.
0: you know, I like to write in fragments. And so more often than now, whether the story is shorter or whether it's a novel length that involves many characters and, you know, many universes within those characters' lives, I actually feel like the the characters come to me in pieces. And so, you know, very often I have to, like, pull back, even in a novel, from, like, the immensity of their lives. And so... These days, because you know, I've Neruda on the Park is a is a book that I wrote over fifteen years of my life, mm. and so every single time when I felt discouraged or I felt ready to give up, I would write a short story, and I mm. consider short fiction play. Like I, I find that, that I just, <laughs> 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 I find that it's like so delicious to write something short, and for me, I think about short stories as. You know, the moment that changes the character's life forever. And mm-hmm. to me, just observing a character who's about to make or not make decisions, right, that mm-hmm. um, that might change their lives for me it's is fascinating. And I just I love short fiction. For me, it always feels like a break.
1: Yeah, I know. When I was um, struggling with the novel, I would often like I would definitely take a break to do a short story and it did feel like play it felt like I love the word you use delicious just a Mm -hmm. little you know let me just take a little riff over here and like (laughs) feel like I writing is still fun it's still fun So, Clavis, you teach fiction writing as well, and I'm really curious, when it comes to short story craft, what's the one thing that you're always harping about with your students? That they're always saying, okay, here she goes again with this little rule or this thing to keep in mind? For me, I think
0: it's really about propulsion. I Mm -hmm. feel really strongly that when we're teaching writers, you know, what to care about on the page, so much of what we pay attention to, and rightfully so, is the line, right? And the beauty of the line and the precision of the language. And, you know, one of the things that I tell my students is that it's so critical for you to think about what it is in the story that should make a reader care. Like, Mm -hmm, what mm -hmm. is it about what's happening that should make them not be able to stop reading from sentence to sentence, paragraph to paragraph, right? All the way through the end. So for me, like Propulsion is really rooted on stakes Mm -hmm. and, you know, what is it that the character desires and making desires concrete. I think for me as a writer, it took a really long time for me to embrace because I always wanted to be like really super smart. And like all of my characters (laughs) always wanted like these very abstract things, you know, like freedom and power, you know, I think for me, especially with Neruda on the park, I feel like the whole thing turned on its head when I realized what my characters actually wanted. And those desires were very much concrete. And so now, you know, I think this idea of like the tension of a world who wants to keep your characters from getting what they want and the characters desire to get it is what creates a propulsive story.
1: I love that. And And Pablo... In your story, Fogg is definitely a character with a lot of desires and a lot of stakes. Um, So for those who haven't had a chance yet to read or to listen, Fogg follows Pablo, who's a worker at a resort in the Dominican Republic, and he caters to tourists, especially women tourists. And he dreams of elevating his status, but potentially at a very high cost. Anything else you would add to that description, Clavis, in terms of what you think the story is about? I love what you just said. That's that's perfect. I would only
0: add that Pablo is someone who has suffered a great deal of loss. And part of the story is him also trying to hold on to avoid further loss.
2: And let's talk a bit more about the origins of Fog. Because you, you said earlier that often the stories start with, for you, start with character. So that, is that the case here that it started with Pablo? Or did this one come about differently?
0: It did. I mean, it definitely came in about character. And for me, setting is really important in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And, you know, last summer I spent the month of August in the Dominican Republic, and I hadn't been there in a really long time. And one thing that I've noticed anytime I go back to the Dominican Republic is how starkly surreal resorts are. There was a time in my life where I couldn't, afford a resort, let alone, you know, being a guest at one. And it's been really fascinating now because, you know, I'm in a different social class than I was when I when I was born in the Dominican Republic and as I was growing up there. And now when I go back, I can afford to stay in some pretty fancy places. And so, you know, this is a story that I had. I probably started writing before August of last year, for sure. But it wasn't until I was in the Dominican Republic last August, and I was at a resort, a different kind of resort, because there are homes, and like, so the people that work there will service your home, cook and clean, and all these things. But I just remember meeting a young man that, to me, seemed very much like what I had envisioned the character in an earlier version of Fog to be. And I just noticed this character interacting with guests and then interacting with his peers and it just opened up like the story in a way for me where I finally figure out what the story was about because before that it was someone who has to you know make some choices about his life in order to attain this desired status and at that moment I realized that it was really about a person who's deeply confused about how to attain his own happiness, you know, Mm. and how, what versus what the world considers to be happiness. Right. And so, I don't know. I just think like, it was one of those moments where I was in a place with my family, with my two young children and my husband, my cousin was there with her daughter and they're all talking about something else. And I'm just kind of fixated on this young man. And he probably was looking at me like, look at this tourist, checking me out. (laughs) And I'm like, I swear I'm not checking you out. Like you're just opening something up to me about this story I'm trying to write. I mean, we never even had a conversation about it, but it was just really an incredible moment for me because I think just observing the world sometimes brings Mm. with it these gifts. And Mm -hmm. if you're just attentive, then you can find your way through a jam.
1: There are so many interesting and complex characters in this story. Um, There's Mama Juana, Fida, the sisters Lara and Leticia. There's Toki, Uh, Pasifino and Melba the client that Pablo has at the very end of the story. I feel like each one of these characters could hold their own short story. Any chance that you're going to explore that in the future? Kind of make something a little more out of this one? Absolutely. Um, Donnie. I know. I'm, reading just, my mind? I'm setting you up. I'm setting you up here. <laughs> I'm like, are you reading my mind? <laughs> um,
0: so Fog is part of a collection of short stories I've been working on for a few years. And it is, I mean, I don't know what people would call it because it's definitely one plot line. And each of the characters carries a part of the action. So Vida, who is, you know, Pablo's love interest, is I've already written her story. And then, um, yeah, several of the other characters in in this story have already had a starring role. And some of the folks in this story will have a starting role later on. So I love these characters because they don't leave me alone. I'm, I'm always like, <laughs> quiet down. This is not your
2: turn. This is not your story. They're relentless.
1: <laughs> they but, yeah. are And it's such a world This, mm-hmm. The world of this resort On every level You know There are the workers But also the guests And then there Is Mama Juana's which is um, has a locals only night on Thursday nights, starting at 10 p.m. Very specific hours. How fun was that? Well, not fun because the story goes to a dark place, but there is a certain joy that you capture of the workers sort of being outside of the tourist gaze and enjoying the music and the drink. Um, What was writing that scene like?
0: Yeah, I love that scene and writing that scene because I think, you know, one of the things that I often think about, especially when I worked a corporate job and how because I also was a manager of people and. I would notice how anytime I came around, people would just sit a little straighter, no matter how friendly I tried to be. Mm. There was just this kind of weight that, you know, your boss carries when they're walking around. And I was thinking a lot about these spaces, you know, especially in the service industry. I mean, one of my first jobs when I was in college was, you know, I stayed up at Skidmore College and I was a cleaning person for the dorms. And I was going to school, but I couldn't afford you know, to buy food and like just different things without having to work. And so I, I became part of this group of like cleaning people who are like mostly townies um, in Saratoga Springs. And so in Saratoga, there's like this huge racetrack and it's like really stark how like the people who have money have so much money and the people who don't have money have very little money. And so I just remember like that summer and I was probably 19 years old when I was working with, you know, people who were two, three times my age. And I just remember like whenever the bosses would go away, it was just like a very, very different dynamic. And so when I was thinking about writing this story and especially the scene where Pablo, you know, is leaving the resort, he hasn't left the resort in many weeks and he's leaving because he's trying to find someone. He's, you know, he's hoping to run into someone. And once he arrives, I mean, what's waiting for him there is community. Is the ease of being around people that aren't requiring anything from you, that aren't ready to take anything from you. Everyone there is in the same station. And so, in a way, it's one of the few times in the story where Pablo really gets to be free.
2: So something that well there was so much that I appreciated about fog in terms of just the tender and charged subject matter it, that it broaches as we touched on already and also so much to admire from a craft perspective and I know we give spoilers but I don't want to give you know too many spoilers but right. I, I do want to just say I gasp. I think it was on the second or third time I read Fog, where you give a single physical detail that gives the reader the clue they need to solve the mystery of, you know, the crime that's committed. And I missed it the first time. And then it was like on a subsequent read, I was like, oh, my gosh, there's just such an attention to detail that, you know, from just a a craft and writing perspective that I, you know, just... Feels yummy, you know. You Use that word, delicious, earlier. It feels yummy, you know, as a as a writer to to see these things in in a story. And then there was, I felt like in this single sentence, you captured like decades and generations when you wrote, he meaning Pablo would be the first in many generations of family men who didn't go out in the morning to fish. And I just roll that one around like in my mouth for a little while because. It's doing so much work towards where it appears, which is at the end of the story, and we and as and the reader now understands all of those layers. And then I started imagining what if that sentence had appeared at the beginning of the story, right? We as a reader, same words, but we wouldn't understand everything that's embodied in that. And I just thought that that was just brilliant and just really, beautiful to have this sentence that's so brimming with meaning it's also full of questions right and i promise i am going to get to a question myself no please don't
0: i linger (laughs) linger in all
2: of the compliments that you would like i am not in a rush this question is like it's brimming with questions like, is the outcome of the story, is the terrible choice that Pablo has to make at the end, is that a victory for him? Would his father and grandfather be proud of him, you know, because he doesn't have to go out in the morning to fish? Oh, and of course, we haven't even talked about the work that going out to fish can mean a lot of different things. Does Pablo have regrets? And I love that you don't, answer these questions for us as readers, but you compel us to sit with these questions. So my question is, was this ending um, sort of the organic first ending that came upon drafting it? Or is this something you came to upon revision? Yeah, well, thank you for that. I mean, I
0: really appreciate your reaction, Disha. I do think that it's very important for me within the work, whether it's my short fiction, or my longer forms of work to charge the sentences with questions. Mm. I feel like what haunts us as readers and what I love most is when I'm giving an opportunity to make up my own mind about what the character choices mean longer term for them. I find that to be a really rich place for me as a human to like Mm. just, marinate and then to think of my own life and the choices I've made, you know? So I really appreciate that reaction. In terms of the ending, you know, the ending of the story went past this point to the next day. And one of the things that I love the most about, you know, working with Donnie as an editor mm, mm-hmm. is that when Donny, you know, it's, let me just say this for anyone who's listening, who might be a writer. And it's that I've been thinking a lot about our instincts and when do we listen and when do we not listen. I'm Mm. part of some really exceptional writing groups. And I had written an earlier version of the story where it starts exactly where it started and it ended pretty close to where it ends now. But I had been given some feedback about like what we need to prepare readers and, you know, things like that, which I thought were fair enough. And so I added a lot of content to the story at the beginning. And then there was maybe like another page or so that went past where it ends now. And it's so interesting because when Donnie read it and Donnie was like, "Mm, I think the natural starting place is here. And I was like, I knew it. I knew I I was right. (laughs) So, you know, so I'm really so grateful to Donnie because I think Donnie had this really... Keen understanding of this world and like the organic place where the story should start and end. Mm. And so, you know, for me, I always tell my students that, you know, one of the things that makes me feel bolder now after like taking 15 years with my first book. Mm -hmm. is that I now recognize that there are these opportunities for collaboration Mm. and that it doesn't take away from you as writer or creator, but rather, like, this is the way it has always been. Mm -hmm. The best writers who we admire and love Also had editors that made their work better, right? Yes. And so for me, it was just kind of thrilling to a, you know, work with Donny because she's brilliant, but also because she like helped me (laughs) be like, yeah, you're right. Start it where you start and end it where you end it, you know? Um, Because I think I think the way that we ended it for me felt very transcendental, and also felt like what I wanted it to feel like a Mm -hmm. little bit, you know, moving a little bit forward, moving a little bit backwards.
1: Well, that image of the the chocolate melting on his tongue, the taste of sugar, of such softness of caramel, it was just such, I was like, this is the line. This has got to be the ending. (laughs) We have to like, (laughs) I mean, it just knocked me out. And you had all the elements there. It was just like figuring out how to rearrange them a little bit. So the beginning and the end did feel a bit more natural, Yeah. yeah.
2: And I love that you're both talking about a feeling because you probably get this a lot when emerging, you know, newer writers ask you for advice or ask your perspective about how you know when the story's done or when there's an ending and so forth. And I think sometimes people are looking for like a formula. And at least for me, you know, there isn't. It is a feeling. And and I think that goes back to what you were saying, Clavis, about play and you know, approaching writing with a this kind of spirit of play and exploration and experimentation and trusting your gut and following your gut, following your own, you know, pleasures. Like I imagine as you're writing that it's as pleasurable for you as it is for us to read. Is that true? Oh, absolutely.
0: I mean, as you were talking, I was just thinking about how one of the biggest differences for me in writing a novel and writing a short story is like this inversion happens to me where like in a novel, the beginning and the endings are always crystal clear and it's always the middle that Mm sags. It's always the middle that's like (laughs) a pain in the ass, you know? (laughs) But in a short story for me, I feel like I really know what the heart of the story is. And to Mm -hmm. me, it's always like, how do you enter and how do you exit it? That, you know, tends to be a question mark. And mm-hmm. so I've really learned to give in to these moments of like sensual pleasure in the act of writing because I feel like the whole point of us using sensory detail to help the world come alive, help immerse a reader in this fictional world is that that's the way that we experience the world. I mean, everything we experience, we experience through our bodies. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I mean, finding exactly the way The words and the sequencing of a scene so that me, first of all, I'm 100% there with that character. Mm -hmm. But then also so that I am just in some ways helping a reader be there with me too. I mean, I find this moment of me creating a world that is true to the character and then a reader entering that world to be incredibly intimate. And I think that is really sexy. I mean, maybe I'm not supposed to say that, you know what I mean? But I find that that experience of like, when do you ever else get to enter someone else's imagination? You know, there are other art forms, of course, that I love. But for me, there's just like this incredible sensuous experience in writing good fiction and inviting someone to come along. And I I love that you, you asked the question the way you did, because I think it's like deeply pleasurable to me. And I also feel like it's one of the ways in which we can
2: create community in a way where like you don't even have to touch each other, but you're somehow still touching. That's right. And I think that the, even the response itself, you were like, maybe I shouldn't say that. No, I'm so glad that you did because, well, for lots of reasons, I just think it's juicy, but also um, <laughs> I think it, it um, demystifies this process. And I think one of the only reasons that there is this you know, there is this mystery and this, you know, opaqueness. Is it's a it's elitism and it's some gatekeeping that says that, you know, Mm -hmm. it can only be cerebral, you know, Mm -hmm. as if the carnal and the cerebral are just mutually exclusive. And I think your writing speaks to how that is such a lie. That is just, you know, not true. And then the last thing and you've touched on this a little bit in your response to something Donnie asked earlier, is there anything else that you haven't mentioned already that you would hope that Readers of the story and, and now listeners on when they hear the production, the audio production of Fog that you hope we take away from the story.
0: I am often struggling with this idea of what we are asked to surrender as people in pursuits of success. Mm-hmm. And you know, as an immigrant who grew up in the United States I feel like there was just so much of who I am as a person that I often had to surrender or abandon to be believed to be, you know, part of like the organism that is American society. And a lot of what I think often I was asked to abandon had to do very deeply with like my cultural norms and my language and things like that. And so I'm often inviting readers to consider like how much of a lie it is, this idea that there's there's this more meaningful life that we will all live as long as we make all this material wealth, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and so my characters, and not all of them, I will say in this collection, they're all struggling with very different kinds of desires, you know, around around this concept of freedom. But for Pablo especially, you know, he's really bought into this idea that life on the other side of poverty means a life of wealth. And Pablo connects that wealth and that material wealth with spiritual wealth. And, you know, I just want to invite readers to think about that. Like, you know, because I Mm -hmm. think for all of us, maybe the answer might be different, but I'd Mm -hmm. I'd really like to invite people to think about that.
1: Sort of broadening the lens a little bit, you mentioned that, you know, a story typically starts for you with a character. But what is the process um, that you go through to understand that character's desires and stakes?
0: Yeah, I think um, this is another place where there's really big differences, because when I write longer works. Um, my revision is so ineffective. Like, I can't even believe what I do. Like, every time I revise, I start with a blank page, you know, and I bring over sentence by sentence. It is very elaborate. But with short fiction, my process is I very often have this really strong sense of who the main character is and what the situation is. So with with Fog, I knew that I was going to be writing about this, this young man in a resort and um, his longing for a lover, you know? And so I didn't know much else beyond that, but I know that was the skeleton of the story. And so the process of writing it to me is it's a lot of fun. I mean, I just don't put a lot of pressure on first drafts. I understand that You know, I'm not very precious when it comes to language either in earlier drafts because I think most of it will likely be revised (laughs) and and cut away and changed drastically. So the first few drafts for me are just me telling myself the story and trying to figure out, like, what are the stakes? What does this character care about? I know Pablo had a father. And that relationship and, and this wrestling with masculinity is really important in the story but I also knew that I didn't want to do it in the way that I've seen it done before. You know, I approach questions of masculinity the same way I approach questions of of womanhood. And it's like, what is the cost to the individual, right, to need to define themselves within the parameters? So, you know, the first few drafts for me are are so much fun figuring out. What does the resort look like? You know, a lot of the earlier stories in this collection, the characters aren't at the resort. <laughs> so this is one of the first stories where, where this is someone who really loves this resort. And so, you know, a lot of the early drafts, which is Pablo walking around, giving us a sense of, of who the players are in this, in this massive place. All along, we have this sense of, of this young man longing for, for people who are no longer in his life. So my process then is to bring my short story to my workshop. So I have a couple of really trusted readers that may read earlier versions of my short stories just to help me flesh out what's what. Um, but eventually, I will bring my, my fiction to a, a workshop that I'm part of called Open City And there are some really incredible writers in it. And usually by the time I bring a short story to that group of writers, the story is pretty strong. And that group of writers will often then challenge everything that I've done (laughs) with the story. (laughs) So, you know, um, the structure and, you know, what characters are necessary. And again, like desires and stakes, a lot of people are, are very precise at the line level. So I find a lot of really helpful feedback comes out of that group. There's there's around 10 writers in it. And so what's interesting to me is that like after those workshop meetings, I usually come back to the story. Like I'll read through everybody's feedback on its own and then I'll leave it alone. You know, I give myself some time to just absorb and figure out like what is my instinct telling me about what needs to happen with it. So yeah, so I would say all in all for Fog, I I probably, I would say somewhere around... 12, 13 drafts. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of them happen very fast. Like I would say, I probably went through. Six or seven before I shared it with anybody, you know, like just Mm -hmm. and like really dramatic, like point of view, starting from different points in the characters lives, um, making sure that like Pablo really was the owner of the story and not someone else, because the story is also concerned with with young children and other characters. So making sure that this part of what's happening in the story belongs to Pablo. So for me, it's just a lot of fun. It's like a puzzle. And I love going through drafts because I never throw out my drafts. I save them. And then sometimes those drafts become parts of other pieces of work that can become not even for this project, but different things. So I'm always digging through my old work for it. Me
1: too. I'm not the only one that does that. (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) I have a whole folder called cut parts from other things. And I always (laughs) dream that maybe someday the next big thing will be in those little fragments that got cut out.
2: Yes. I just call mine scraps. Yours all sounds all nice.
1: (laughs) (laughs) They are gems. That's what we should call them. Gems. Yes. 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 back up a bit to baby writer Clavis and your first ever short fiction publication and what you remember about it, because it's always so like amazing to have that first publication.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm smiling so hard right now because it is like such a joy to, to come to this point because I feel like, you know, sometimes, especially for me, I, you know, I got my MFA at NYU and I really thought I was going to be this this novelist and I was very committed to the idea and things have changed quite a bit from when I graduated from my MFA program you know that was nearly two decades ago and When I graduated, you didn't see as many people going between the genres. Like you didn't, you know, novelists. And it was like, are you even taken seriously when you're a short story writer? Um, So for me, like I wanted to be taken very, very seriously as a writer. And so I did not ever try to like publish any short stories. I also like always was writing essays and I never would try to get those published because I was like, you know, enter the world the way you want to be considered. And, you know, it wasn't until I came back into writing. I mean, for a lot of different reasons, I ended up leaving the writing community and just focusing on my full-time corporate job for a long time, on my family. And so about four years ago, you know, I decided to come back very seriously into, into writing. And at that point, I was like, the wheels are coming off. I'm writing everything. <laughs> I felt like this thirst to, you know, just touch every single Genre. I wanted to write essays and I wanted to write very directly about my personal life. And then I wanted to really write short stories and be very serious and intentional about my love of short stories. And so... You know, as I started writing and revising and doing all this other work to to the novel, like I said, I wanted to write short stories. And so played, which Donnie, you mentioned before, in Quirly, yes. um, <laughs> that was my very first short story. Was it? And, that was your and, first? And, yeah, oh it only gosh, got published three years that. ago. It oh only got gosh, published three wow. years ago. I only got published, my fiction only got published for the first time ever three years ago. And, you know, Laura Pigram is amazing. I mean, I was a big Mm -hmm. fan of the Quaylee, of everything Quaylee. I had been to conferences and I, you know, and I participated in some workshops with Laura. And this short story, though, I've written it because one of the questions I had, you know, was like, why am I always trying to write about exceptional people? You know, like, I think I had fallen into this whole... And I think it's like, Disha, what you were talking about before, how often we're, you know, part of like the way that we're brought up, if you're brought up in predominantly white spaces, is that you kind of buy into, and I'll just speak for myself, I bought into this idea that the only people worth examining are exceptional people. And I think... Everybody's exceptional. It's just what they're going through, you know, whether or not that might be considered exceptional by some. And so I just was thinking a lot about how different I was when I was a teenager and how there was a point in my life where I had a choice to make, and I made a choice that kind of pivoted my life toward the academic and toward the the life that I have now. And I was thinking a lot about how different things might have turned if I would have made a different decision just during that time, you know, when I was around 14, 15 years old. And so I just wanted to write a story, and I wasn't even sure whether or not it would ever even be published. And I just wanted to write it in the way that I sounded when I was that age, and in the way that, like, my nieces and nephews sound now. And so I wrote this story just really wanting to be true to what it means to grow up as a young Dominican kid, you know, growing up in Harlem, growing up in Washington Heights. And so I wrote this story. I was really proud of it. I put it through the ringer, you know, by myself with my writing workshops. And then I shared it with a few editors who I had met through different conferences. And I was told that the story needed to be more elegant. And, you know, I remember like thinking about what that meant because my original reaction to the first time one editor said it was like, Feeling outraged and offended, which is always the way I react to anybody giving me any feedback. And then,
2: you know, I,
0: and then I was like, "Calm down, calmate," and I took a, a deep breath to be like, "Is this? Is it true? Like, do I need to like change the language?" And so much of that short story is really about the friction that exists, I think, and a lot of what I explore in 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 my fiction. And I wanted to. Come through at the sentence level, and I work quite hard to create that friction and create, at times, what I consider to be an awkwardness within within the the diction, so mm-hmm. that if you're reading it and the syntax feels slightly off, that is part of like what I want you to struggle with because that's what I have had to struggle with, you know, in in mastering mm-hmm. English, and so so much of that was on purpose, and I felt like it was either thought to be crass or you know and it's it's part of like her charm you know this young young girl and so I I was just like you y'all don't know what you're talking about get out of here like (laughs) elegance get out you don't even know what the point of the story is if you want the story to be elegant like I know how to write elegant stories, you know? And so I just, I left it alone. And then Laura put out a call for short fiction and she responded immediately to my show. I didn't even know her then. And she responded to my short story and you know she published it and she did not touch anything like she she understood it and I just have to tell you like and especially people I mean by the time my first short story got published I had been writing fiction for 20 years (laughs) And, you know, there's something to just be said, you know, for just knowing what your intention is. And, you know, I feel like I could have landed that short story in a place that is considered more successful for like a beginning writer had I been willing to compromise on like what the story is supposed to do. But I was like, you know what, this time around, I mean, I've been around these streets a long time and this time around, I'm going to do it my way. And if that means that like the stories are just not going to be considered polished, the stories are not going to be considered elegant or beautiful or worthy of fancy awards, I'm going to be okay with it. Because it's more important to me that that story stands for what it stands for and it reflect what it's supposed to reflect about my community so you guys are getting me worked up now talking about the story but it was such a good it was just such a good moment to like have the story end in the place where it belonged yes Mm -hmm. yes you know like i think when you have an editor who gets it they're gonna Mm -hmm. know right like donnie you knew there were certain things we had to do to this to fog um and we did it and it's phenomenal but for me like i'll never forget how hard and like how hard in my own heart, I wanted to protect that little story. And then, and then it did, you know. And it Clintus, the
1: I cannot imagine that story any other way than than how it is. And I'm just galled <laughs> that somebody said that to you. And I'm so glad that you didn't listen and you found the right home for it.
2: Speaking of beautiful stories, what is the best sentence you've ever written? I think the sentence that I love most to date is in
0: my novel, Neruda and the Park. And it came to me whole, and it is, Eusebia thought herself the whale. Mm. And that that sentence then became three sentences, because Eusebia Eventually Osevia thinks herself a tree and then eventually Osevia thinks herself the sea. I feel like there was something I wanted to get at with this idea of like how connected we are to the earth
2: and to each other. Um
0: Do you each have a sentence that you think is like the most beautiful thing you've written?
2: I yeah. know mine, just cause people ask me about it all the time. So um my mother made a peach cobbler so good, oh. it made Cod himself cheat on his wife.
1: <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> that was such a good Opening sentence. sentence of peach cobbler. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. I
2: teach that short story, Disha. Oh, thank you. Thank you so yeah. much. Uh, I have another question. What short story by another writer do you wish you had written?
0: You know, I think the one short story that I wish I had written was written by Ana Menendez. The title story in her collection in Cuba, I Was a German Shepherd. It's about this group of of older men who are immigrants and live in Miami. And one of the characters is always telling jokes. And one of the jokes is about this little dog, like a stray. And, you know, the the dog is going through an awfully tough time in Miami, you (laughs) know, not getting enough food. And, you know, one of, uh, of the dog's pals is like saying something to the dog about their station in life and the dog. And this tray says to them, you don't know anything about me. In Cuba, I was a German shepherd. Um, (laughs) And, you know, it's like one of these moments where, like, when I first read that short story, it's so funny. And then you keep reading the story and you cry because it's like, this joke and this little dog is like every character in this collection. <laughs> and it's like everyone had these lives, you know, that were so mm-hmm. grand. And then they come to this country and it's like ha- so much heartbreak, you know? And yeah. so I remember reading that and I carry that story with me, even though I haven't read it in many years. It's one of those stories where there's there's a time when I'm like, oh, how do you do it? Like, how do you bring levity to a moment? And then uh, help a reader to think about something that's so beyond that and in my own life humor has always served that purpose to mm-hmm. like help me deal with really difficult difficult things and so anna menendez in cuba i was a german shepherd it's probably one of my favorite stories that i've ever read and i wish i had written it
1: so Clavis from among your stories which are packed as we said with so many memorable um, characters do you have a favorite You know, I'm going to say
0: because I'm one of these crazy people who I'm like a masochist, I think, because I get very fixated on stories that I can't quite write. (laughs) So I think the favorite thing that I I probably have written to date is a short story I'm writing right now, which I cannot write and I can't figure out how to write it. And it's Mama Juana's story. Um, Mm. It's it's about Mm. this mother who, because of her own life decisions, she has put her two young children in, in some really horrible, horrible um, situation. And this short story is, is really important to me because there's something I'm trying to get at, which I technically don't know how to do it. And so I've been reading so much and listening to brilliant writers talk about crafting stories because I'm like, there's, there's a way, there has to be a way for me to write it. And so I would say, you know, that's probably one of my favorites because it's also probably one of the most beautiful things I've written Um, and the most devastating and it's beyond my grasp and you know for me as a writer I think it's really important that I keep trying to write things I don't I don't know how to write Um, and and I feel like this is gonna give me so much satisfaction if I can pull off what I'm trying to pull off.
1: So now that you're in this whirlwind of publication and learning new things, what do you wish you could go back and say to pre-publication, Clavis, about the entire experience?
0: Oh, I would just say don't be so hard. You know, like, cry. Oh, <laughs> I felt like so much was at stake and it's just really brutal out here for those of us who are trying to do different things and, you know, it's just, it's so wonderful on the other side. And, you know, for so long, I thought it wasn't going to happen. There was just so much rejection and, you know, so much heartache. And Mm -hmm. I just always thought that it was because of me and because of my writing. Like, I wasn't doing something right. And, you know, on this side of it, I'm like... (laughs) You've been great all along. Oh, <laughs> like you've yes, been, you yes. know it's like, and it sounds so conceited, but it's no, like no, don't. You know, it's like not conceited, it's, but it's like you know, I just I felt all along like I just wasn't doing, I wasn't working hard enough, and I I was just really relentless with myself. I I wasn't gentle, and mm-hmm. I feel like now on this side of it, I'm just like goodness gracious, what the world does to us, you know, like just. So I just, that's one thing that I would say. And I keep telling my students that, like, you know, it's going to be hard. And sometimes, yeah, you have to work more on becoming, you know, being intentional and learning the craft, you know. But I just feel like the world demands of us that we cut ourselves and that we be so harsh. And I wish I had listened to the people around me who were telling me to be gentle. And I had wished that I myself had been gentler, And that's something I'm trying to learn now, to not be so hard and to give in to the joys of being a writer more often than I give in to the pressures of of fearing failure.
1: Mm. Wow, Clavis, the world is here for you. I'm so happy for you. So excited for you. Can't wait to read more of your work. And congratulations on everything. It's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast today.
0: Thank you. Uh, Maybe we can cut out the crime part. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I think it's beautiful and vulnerable. I, I do too. I,
2: I oh yeah. my gosh! And I and there's somebody. There are lots of somebodies that need to hear that because usually it's the other way around. It's the people who are so mediocre, <laughs> but yet so entitled, and then people who have such a tremendous gift and and who write so wonderfully. You know, there you are questioning yourself like that makes me want to cry. Like that just it shouldn't be that way. But I'm hoping, you know, we're hoping that through Mm -hmm. URSA and just, you know, our individual efforts supporting each other that we can turn that around.
0: Yeah, no, I love that, and um, oh, I was joking about cutting it. You can leave it. I don't cry very often, and now I feel like <laughs> on this side of being happy. I'm like, oh, happy tears, <laughs> you know. But it yeah. isn't happy tears, you know. There are a lot of tears that come from like uh, so much pain, and you know, one of the reasons why I, I really wanted to be part of URSA and you know I had said to Donnie early on I mean Donnie I don't know I was probably like the fastest person who responded to your email because I was like <laughs> let me in let me in <laughs> um, because I also feel like you know creating these spaces where we are giving an opportunity to do bold things as artists mm. you know is, is so important and one of the things why I'm so grateful you know that it's taken so long for me to get to where I am is that like now I know what I'm working toward. Like I know what I want my work to do in the world. And you know, like when I was twenty five years old and I had written that first book, like I probably would have done anything. You know, if somebody would have said not elegant, right. I would made it elegant. <laughs> you know, like Yeah. Um and so now I'm like, oh no, there's 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 a reason for the friction. There's a reason for the syntax to be awkward like there's there's there are certain things I'm trying to do with my work that some people will understand and so you know that's why it was so important to me to be part of this project too because even though so much time has passed and we could we could argue right that there's so much more space for us it isn't true you know it's still it's still not very much space for us out here and what we're asked to give up and so I'm just really proud to be part of this Oh, I'm thrilled oh, to have you.
1: I want
2: to cry. I know.
1: Thank you so much, Clavis. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. If you love today's conversation and want more, become an URSA member today by subscribing in Apple Podcasts or by going to ursastory.com slash join. You'll help us produce our original stories, and you'll support our work on this podcast as we turn you on to our favorite writers and short stories. You can support this podcast by leaving a review and a comment in Apple Podcasts. Talk to you next time.